Our passage this morning comes from Colossians 3. Uh, We are wrapping up our series this morning in Colossians. Uh, We will be starting a fall series on the 9th um, through the book of John. And just for clarification, there may have been some miscommunication. I don't know what I actually said, but Sunday school starts on the 9th. The new schedule does not start until the 9th. Okay. Uh, So here we are in Colossians. Um, Paul has mentioned in chapter 2 that there's a tendency in the Christian life to move back toward earthly things for sanctification, for defining yourselves, for trying to um, get better and improve. And he warns the Colossians of that process. And then in chapter 3, he's unpacking what it means to be sanctified, what it looks like to grow in Christ, right? Sanctification, we've been saying, is the process after conversion, before Jesus returns, where we are growing in Christ's likeness, where we are becoming holier, we're being sanctified. And he, and he unpacks it uh, in chapter three. So this is our third look at this concept, this idea. And uh, this morning we'll look at verses 12 to 17 with a heavy amount of recap. So, if you didn't, weren't here or you forgot, hopefully the recap will help. So starting in verse 12, Paul says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the message of the gospel. We praise you, Jesus, that you would die for us, that you would grant us your righteousness, that we might grow in you. And I pray, Lord, this morning that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts if there are those here that do not know you, to hear the music of the gospel, maybe for the first time. And if there are those here that are just stagnant or curious on how to grow or just wishing that, that maybe there be even a small victory, that they might hear of your precious mercy toward them. And I pray that would come across this message this morning. Amen. So we've been looking, again, at, at sanctification, and I, I want, I've asked Dan to put the slide up from verses 1 to 4. These are the controlling verses of the discussion. Many of you have possibly even memorized them, where Paul says, if then you have been raised, and by the way, he's already explained to them, I'm talking to Christians, and he's really saying this since, because the fact is you've been raised with Christ, he says, so seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so what we've been unpacking is this idea that um, there's a tendency in Christianity and in religions 
and it seeps into Christianity, to, to use earthly methods, earthly means to grow. Okay, we can knock that one down. Just memorize that, everybody. You got it in your head? Um, here's an illustration I've been sort of processing for years. I don't know if I've ever used it in a sermon, but it's crossed my mind. You know when you watch a movie about the future? I didn't do a ton of research on this shocker, but you remember Back to the Future, the one that took place in the future? And recently, like we hit the date on the newspaper and everyone's like, we're so different than they thought. Like that whole concept, right? So that's as, much, as far as I'm going with that part. Now, here's what's always struck me. You see movies about the future and they have spaceships and they travel to far off places and it's amazing. But then they show the cockpit and it has a 1950s TV. And you're like, Don't, did they not know that we'd eventually have flat screens? You know what I mean? Like it's like, it's like the technology of the day seeps in to their view of the future. Even like another great example might be like the Terminator. When the first one came out, they didn't know CGI was coming. So you had this like robotic looking, you know, skeletal thing that was amazing. And then in Terminator 2, which comes out years later, it's like this amazing, beautiful, like moldy guy, right? I don't even know what you call it. Anyone seen Terminator 2? Am I just off the reservation right now? Okay. Technology, right? So, the, so even when you're dreaming about the future, these movie makers are sort of stuck and, and exposed by the types of, oh, we'll just throw a knob here and, a, and, a, and a, a, t- a TV screen there. I think we do that with sanctification. We think we know where we're going. I know where I'm going. Holiness, righteousness, Christ-likeness. What are you going to do to get there? Oh, I know what to do. Work harder. You know, set some goals. Make some resolutions. And we use these old methods to grow that actually cease and stop the growth. And Paul says, no, no, no. There's a mystery to sanctification that will blow your minds. And I hope that this morning it, it continues to open your eyes a little bit that there's a mystery of sanctification. And, and primarily I want you to hear this thought. We talked about it in our confession to sin, that the way up, the way down is the way up. That the primary means for growth in the Christian life, Paul teaches us, is through actually going to the cross and going down, which is painful. It's backwards. So it's upside down. We're going to look at three things, but rather than um, telling you all the points, I'll just work on them as we go. The first one I want to talk about is the mystery of the new man. Uh, one of the things that Paul has been saying that is, I think can be revolutionary for you, and I hope it might be, is that um, there is such a thing in you as a new person, a new man. That when you came to Christ, or, or woman, a new creation, uh, God put a new person on you. You became completely transformed. You're not, uh, there's a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. That's, I stole it for the title of my sermon. It was written, I think, the 1700s, so I think it's, I'm allowed to do that. Uh, I highly recommend it. Walter Marshall, you can get it on for 99 cents, I think, online, because it's out of print. Uh, or, or excuse me, it's out of copyright. Um, anyway, read it. It's excellent. But what he says in there that really is profound is this, and it may sound profound to you. When you became a Christian, God was not trying to heal your flesh. I think a lot of Christians think that they came to Christ, I'm going to grow, and the way I'm going to grow is God's going to take my flesh and diminish it and, and, and remove it, which will leave space for this new person to come in. And Walter Marshall says that's not what's happening at all. What's happening is 
you have a completely new identity, a new man, a new person that is true of you. But often what we do is allow the old man, which still resides in us, to have the power we sh- it should never have. Now, why does that matter? If you think it should diminish, then you're going to be blindsided after going, say, years without a certain sin pattern for that sin pattern to come full force out of nowhere. You're going to think to yourself, I haven't grown a bit. But that's not true. The flesh can rear its ugly head just like that. But when you understand what Walter Marshall's saying and what Paul's saying, I'm going to give you the verses here in a moment, you begin to realize, I have this new identity, and regardless of how I feel or how other people perceive me, what is true of me is I am a new man. Let's look at our passage and see where that is. Paul says in verse 12, Put on then, comma, and then he's going to pick it up after the next comma, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. But look in that parenthetical phrase. Look at that, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now, Paul uses that language so often, and we just glaze right over it. But I want you to think for a moment what's just happened. We preached last week, verses 5 to 11. They just heard those verses. What's the content of verses 5 to 11? Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, he gives his whole list, impurity, passions, evil, uh, covetousness, which is idolatry. He's saying, look, you have sin in you. Put it to death. Right? Anger and malice. And, and you're in that audience, and you're at Colossae. You're, you're sitting there. There's not like, let's say it's this many people. There's not like only three people who are guilty of those sins. Like everyone in the room hearing that letter read the very first time is feeling the weight of what Paul is saying from verses 5 to 11. Are you with me? Paul's sitting here saying to them essentially, like, you guys still have sin in you. Do you all feel cheered up by that? Like, I've got great news for you. You still are awful. Okay, maybe he didn't say that much, but he says, listen, you, you have anger and wrath and malice and slander, and, and these are simple evidences of the fact that you're idolaters still. But then you get to verse 12. There's, no, there's been no gap. He doesn't give him 10 minutes to, to improve. Like, let me just see how you've been doing since I said that bad news. Like, how was your week? We preached this last week. Did any of you sin this week? Okay, so the ones of you that didn't, I'm going to read you verse 12. Those of you that did sin this week, go back to verse 5. That's not what he says. He rolls right into verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. You are holy. What? Holy? Paul, I just became convinced that I struggle with idolatry. No, no. What he means by holiness is you have been set apart by God. You are chosen from the foundation of time. Christ came to seek and save the ones his father gave him, of which you are one, and he has rescued you. He has set you apart. And listen to the word, beloved. That's not my favorite word. The Greek is right. The the English is correct. I'm not trying to be Mr. Nosy or a snooty scholar here. I'm just simply saying we don't use that word a lot. We don't say, hi, beloved. It's like the word dear. Hey, dear, can you grab me something out of the fridge? Or dear sir. We don't really mean it like it used to be meant. Chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. That's how the NIV has chosen to translate that. Both are correct, but what I want you to hear, what the, what the Greek is trying to say, what, what Paul is trying to say is you are loved. 
you are loved. Forget the fact that you have sin. Before the sin, you are loved. That's the upside down nature of the gospel. So if you have Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And what Paul is teaching is this mystery is that we find ourselves often simply not believing this reality about ourselves. But Paul is urging us to believe the truth, that you are loved. So that's the mystery of the new man. The second idea is the posture of the new man. The posture. Um, Paul does give a list of things, like he says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meanness. Put these on. Clothe yourselves in these. But then in verse 14, he, he gives the crowning word. And above all these, put on love. If the, Dan, can we put the verses back up? I'm going to keep referencing them. Uh, verse 14, and put on love, which, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What Paul is saying is that when you have the new man ruling and reigning in your life, Jesus, you will begin to act like Jesus. You will begin to do the things that Jesus does. Um, I want to read you some verses that Paul has been saying in Colossians to show the, na- the fact that you are connected. What Paul is not saying, I want you to hear me, Paul is not saying, go out and act like Jesus. He's saying, Christ is in you. That's who's going to be changing you. We're going to talk about how in a minute. But I just want you to get, just believe what Paul is saying. I'm going to start walking us through Colossians. I would encourage you after this series is over, maybe this afternoon, read the letter of Colossians yourself and underline how many times Paul says we are in or with or transformed or etc. by Christ. But I'm just going to read you a few places where he touches on this topic. Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's happened if you're in Christ. In verse 27, Paul goes on to say about the Gentiles, he said, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the mystery? Christ in you. The hope of glory. In chapter 2, he's talking about what he wants for those people who've never met him face to face. He says that their hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I want to explain that for two seconds. Christ isn't the doorway to a bunch of treasure. Christ is the treasure. What you want when you want treasure is what Jesus actually gives you. Our job is to find out why we're not seeing it that way. Okay? We're going to go there in a minute. But please hear the theological concept in your head. Paul is saying if you could rightly see what you have in Christ, treasure like you think of it, like, you know, those in cartoons with like gold, it would be boring. Right? Because Jesus... That's what we want to get to. What's, what's, he goes on in verse uh, 9. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We're in chapter 2, 9, if you want to write these down. And you have been filled in him, who is the head and of all rule and authority. A few verses later, you've been buried with him in baptism. You've been raised with him 
okay? When he, you've been made alive together with him. Do you hear what's happening? Paul is not saying to you, you are part of a religion. Jesus is, is God, and your job is to obey Jesus. What he's primarily teaching is, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. And there's a mystical union that, is, that makes you in Christ, you, you can't even begin to separate it out. And so what we are to do as Christians, that Paul will tell us in chapter 3, is to set our minds on that reality daily. That's the goal of the Christian life, to live out of that reality. Right? Okay, does that make sense? Jesus has, by the way, these two types of obedience. Uh, when I was at Heritage Presbyterian Church becoming a youth intern, we didn't, we did, yeah, we entered our youth interns, Hannah and Nathan. Remember that? That was pretty hard in front of the session. Did I, ask, I don't know if I asked you the question I got, but Chuck Garrett looked at me and goes, can you explain the differences between Christ's active obedience and his passive obedience? What? No. Passive sounds negative. What? Okay. Theological terms. The passive obedience of Christ is primarily the one I think most of us get, that Jesus had to die on a cross, that Jesus was, in other words, he was passive. Like, he, he, it was his death where, in a sense, he's, he did nothing. He could have called down legions of angels, but he received it, right? That that gives us his pass, our, that gives us our righteousness in Christ, right? His passive obedience, but there's an active obedience that we often forget, and that is that while Christ lived on earth, he was perfect. He was love. He was meek, and he was humble, and he came in and lived a perfect life, and wherever he went, he brought holiness. And that active obedience is not something we inherit when we come to Christ, but it's available. In other words, what we're longing to have Jesus do is through his spirit pour out that reality in our lives, and that's what Paul's teaching. He's saying, I want to see you tap into the resource that is already yours, that Jesus is love. And, and we don't want to just get caught up in all the benefits of Jesus. What we want is Jesus. He is the treasure. And when you begin to live like that and look to him, without even realizing it's happening, he will begin to move in your life. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not a planned out, like this month I'm going to really work on smiling more. And, and that's fine, do it, we all need to smile more. But, but the point is, Jesus is going to give you real joy, and that's going to lead to authentic smiles. Does that make sense? Okay, how do we do that? How does that happen? We're going to spend the rest of our discussion on this process, the process of the new man. Um, in verse 15, Paul says this, and again, I, for those of you that are just kind of coming in on the tail end of this, I have been saying it's like the plane landing. You think, okay, we're about to end this plane trip, but that's where you have to buckle and hold on and turbulence. This passage has so much in it. You could preach this passage for like eight weeks. So what happens if you're not careful as a reader or a listener is you just glaze over critical things. But look at verse 15. Paul has just said, put on love, which is above all these others. And now in verse 15 he says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And it's so easy and tempting to read that and go, okay, I'll try that. 
I'm going to try that this week. I'm going to just take deeper breaths, smile more when something stresses me out. I'm going to see what that feels like. But there's a lot more going on with that than just simply a behavioral response, right? Um, Paul is giving us a profound truth, and it's this, that you as a human being are longing. Okay, this is a large statement, and many of you are going to go, I don't believe this, but I'm going to just say, I think all human beings long for righteousness. Now, the Christians in the room are going, okay, A, that word's really hard, and B, I know my atheist friends could care less about righteousness, right? Anyone with me? Like, no, like, I go to class, no one's going, I want to be righteous. Uh, That's what we all want. In the garden, man was separated from God, and Adam and Eve wanted to be right. They wanted to do what they thought was right. Fallen humanity fills our lives with things that make us feel right. And that's what we call idols, right? So last week when Paul went from sexual immorality to impurity to evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry, what he is saying is the fleshly, earthly in you is driven by idols. And last week we talked about the fact, I remember that silly illustration of positive Paul and negative Neil, for those that weren't here, positive Paul was the kid who was so positive, he would dig in a, in a room full of manure, cheering. And the parents couldn't believe it. And when they finally said, what are you doing? He said, I'm looking for the pony. You can't fool me. There's a pony somewhere in here. And everyone laughs. Go ahead. Come on. It's better than the fish joke. Um, that's its own joke on top of a joke, Doug. Sorry. So there's no pony in there. And I, here's what I said. Growing up, I was told that story to say, be more positive. Act like positive Paul. But it's foolish. Like, what are we telling people? Even though I know there's not a, ho- a horse in this room, I'm going to pretend I'm happy? No. Okay. Where am I going with that? We are delusional because we choose idols on one hand that feel good in the moment, yet we know in our brains won't please us. Like every one of you, this is going to be the most depressing I'm going to get, ready? You're dying. I don't mean to be mean, but you are. Like right now, since you've been in here, and you probably really feel it like right now, you have aged. And it's going to end. Like there will be a moment for some of us sooner than others where like it's sad and you're dying. And I think that's, that's the enemy and that's horrific. But the problem is our culture for some reason, we're really good at it, and we're all really good at it, that sounds surprising. Like, even right now, do you feel a little bit, like, surprised by that? Like, yeah, he's right. Like, what? why? Because we have learned to put delusional thinking around our heart. And then you get bad news that reminds you that you're in a daydream, and you're like, oh, there goes that idol, there goes that thing, it was exposed. And now I realize, once again, things are futile, what can I gravitate toward now? Like, everyone that wants money knows what? Money won't make you happy. Well, I know. I want to give it a try, right? <laughs> I'm going to put it in there. I'm going to go after it. What are your idols? What are, um, Philippians 4, 6 tells us something similar to this a little differently. Paul, to the Philippians, says something that maybe some of you have memorized. It's a really good verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. So he's saying, don't be anxious. Don't have anxiety. What's causing your anxiety? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is he saying? What's causing your anxiety is that you are guarding your heart with delusional things, and you're doing it willfully, right? Only Jesus can guard your heart. Everything else will let you down. Jesus himself, in Matthew 10, 28, says this. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, this is verse 27, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops, here it is, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now that sounds really negative, but, but listen, do not fear those who can kill the body. How do we fear what can kill the body? Well, we don't do it like this, I'm so scared. We do it like this. I'm going to have mastery over my body through products and workouts and diets. And these are all good things. That's what an idol is, by the way. An idol is a good thing worshipped. But when it guards my heart to where I look in the mirror and see another wrinkle and I become depressed, I have a problem. Right? When When I see a sign of my aging... And I become so undone. I read an article about Marilyn Monroe, 36, horribly depressed because what? She, and, and they knew about this. So that her idol came crashing down of beauty. That's the only identity she had. So what is your idol? Paul is saying, here's the secret to the new man. Find that idol and confess it before Jesus. Um, I was listening to a pastor talk about this idea. He tells a story of a young woman I think a college student, no, a high school student, who had just become a Christian. And his point was, she was so new to Christianity, she didn't have the filters you all have when talking to a pastor. So the, this girl's like, yeah, talking about problems, and he just starts to share the gospel. He's sharing, like, you're in Christ. Like, you can't lose this. He loves you. It's not because of any, all these beautiful truths. And she says, yeah, but what if I have all that, but I'm not popular? And he just... I don't think he laughed to her face, but his point was she didn't even have the, like, the ability like you and I have to just sort I'm not going to say that right now. I'm going to just nod politely and think great words, brother, and then later feel it. But what she was expressing in her heart is, I love Jesus, but I really also need to know I'm going to have a good job, a good marriage. I need my kids to respect me. I need to know these things are going to be true, so what we end up doing as Christians is we make Jesus into a sort of helpmate, help me Jesus, get what I really want. And then Jesus begins to be boring and our Christianity becomes stunted and we have all these idols. So I'm going to ask you the hard question, like where are your idols? Um, I've told this story before and I'll just tell you it again. Um, for me, a lot of this came to light when we were in a, a bit of financial pinch in seminary, and Emily's, I'm on, I remember being on the cell phone. Yes, there were cell phones back then. I think they were like this big. No, but probably flip phone, pre-smartphone. And my wife says, you know, she just reminded me, like I'm kind of expressing some frustrations, and she said, just remember that, you know, the, that scene in the Gospels where the ship and the waters were, were just flooding, you know, it was going, it was gonna, the ship was going to go down. And, Jesus is asleep. And so her encouragement was remember that even in turmoil, there's this opportunity for peace. And as we discussed it further, 
what, it, what I began to realize was my rebuttal that I don't think I told her, maybe I even said it on the phone was, yeah, but what if the ship goes down? Like, that's great. But what if the, the worst case scenario happens? Now what? Like, where's my Christianity going to bail me out now? And then, of course, you say that and you realize, Jesus, like, he's on the boat. Like, where would you want to be if his ship's going to sink? If you're going to be in a car accident, if you're going to have any problem that's going to come in your life, where, I want to be like in the bosom of my Savior in that moment, right? And if he can have peace in that moment, that means I'm not seeing things correctly, right? And that freed me to realize I'm longing not for Jesus, not for glory, but in that moment, I'm longing for a little idol. It got exposed, and that is I want security. I want to know that we're going to make it through the next month or whatever the issue was. And when your idols are exposed, cheer up. Those are your moments to run and say, Jesus, I am now seeing a brand new shiny thing that's taking me away from you. Will you remind me once again that you are everything? Is Christ all for you? Um, I'm going to do something really unwise, and I'm going to end with application from Paul. But it's a really tough passage. And, it, and I didn't have it printed up, and it's really tricky, but I'm going to just apply this gospel message to these verses. And these are fun verses because you women and men use these against each other. College students, you can just listen for a minute. Wives, he says right after verse 18, submit yourself to your husbands. And wives, what do you say? Ah, yes. Ah, yes, but the Bible goes on to say, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Right? That's how we do it, right? Emily, the Bible says submit to, you know, I know, I know what the Bible says. In fact, I know it so well, I know the next verse. Right? Ah, she got me. Okay, it goes on. Uh, Children, obey your parents in everything. I love to just tell my kids this one all the time. But what do the kids say? Fathers. I haven't ever told my boys that this is in the Bible, but uh, <laughs> if, if Shane does his job, I'm sure pretty soon Grayson will use this one on me. I, I'm, now I shouldn't even read it. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. <sighs> the next one is very strange. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are earthly or your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity. Fearing the Lord. Okay, Paul, you have lost your mind, right? You have lost your mind. Like, how are we going to do this? And so here's how I'm afraid most people read this. It's like Ozzy and Harriet. We have this sweet couple on the front row right here since there's nobody here. And this is being read the very first time at Colossae. And the husband's kind of gently elbowing the wife. Wife, submit to me. I'm a pretty good husband. And then a minute later, the husband kind of elbows the wife. You know, it goes back and forth. That's not what's going on. Wives, submit to your husbands. He's saying it's impossible. Like you have a, your husband is unsubmittable to. Like they're the worst. Like that's what he's saying. The bond servant doesn't have a good master. Hey, if you really knew your, your master, you would think he's a pretty good guy. I mean, that's not what's going on. Paul is saying the gospel is so upside down that no matter how bad your marriage is, Jesus is better. And you can actually, if don't take on abuse, okay? 
We're not talking about he can go out and have all these affairs. We're just simply saying you can find Christ big enough to actually love your wife or you love your husband if you're a wife. Now, the next one's even more, I think, difficult. Husbands, love your wives. Again, well, that's easy. She's submitting to me now. Think, now that you're submissive, I can love you finally. Wait, how did Jesus do it? Remember Hosea? Remember Hosea? He sent to love Gomer, a prostitute, to, which represents the church. Jesus goes in Philippians, we find, to a church that has abandoned him, to a people who have said, I am not with you. And he goes anyway and marries them. The gospel makes that possible. So quit thinking, oh, I'll, I'll be like Christ when my wife does this or that. Right? Here's the point. This is the good news. Paul's not, I'm going to say this is controversial. Paul f- believes, this is, the, this is not controversial. This is the thing you all already agree with. Paul believes the gospel will change your marriages. Paul believes the gospel can change your work relationships, etc., etc. But he's not primarily teaching that. What I think he's primarily teaching is no matter how bad it gets, Jesus loves you. You are defined by Jesus. And when that is what's ruling your hearts, you can exist in really bad situations. Let us pray that those situations are alleviated this side of heaven. But remember, you are longing for glory. When that ship goes down, that you wake up, the water filled the lungs, but you wake up in heaven. Is that your longing? When Christ, who is your life, verse 4, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. You want to grow in your Christianity. I'm going to recap it as we close. Start by recognizing I am in Christ, and my goal is for him to appear where I will appear with him in glory. And then, as Paul says in verse 17, Take everything else you do and run it through that lens, right? He says, in everything you do, whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord. Is Jesus the reason for what I do? Is he the one ruling my heart, bringing me peace? Pretty simple, okay? But here's the good news. It's already true of you right now. Put on, then, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, you are God's chosen ones, you are holy and you are loved. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Jesus, we need heart surgery because we are so insistent on having the idols and you. Thank you for loving us even while we struggle with valuing other things that are earthly more than you. Thank you for starting this process that you will bring to fruition at glory of removing these idols from our hearts that we would begin to plug into you, Jesus, finding you to be our only satisfaction, our only hope. Please continue to expose in us all the ways that we run from you. Help us to long for meekness and humility that comes from your Holy Spirit. Amen. For our confession this morning, please stand. It comes from the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, Shane said this a few weeks ago. I thought it was a good point. We put a confession in here, and the idea is we are all joining together to say what we believe. But for some of you, you've never read this. So 
feel free to not say it if you're not sure. That's fine. Uh, it's simply a way for us to say things we believe we all agree to, but the, the process of saying it in unison drills it into our hearts. So uh, what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, though all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Amen. You may be seated. And we respond to the gospel presentation and to this confession with a meal. Jesus is saying, I'm here to feed you. And what we are feasting on is him. These elements uh, represent his body and his blood, his passive obedience. He is saying, uh, when you received me, we have come together in such a way that you have taken me. You know, in John 6, you've eaten of my flesh and you've drinking of my blood. Of course, not literal, but it's also more than just remembering. His spirit promises to be here. And there's something that happens in this meal together that's uh, hard to even put into words. So this meal is for those of you who are Christians, who are born again, who have placed your faith in Christ. If that is not your story, then we would simply say, uh, the way grace does communion, you're free to kind of hang back. We'd ask you not to come to this portion, uh, not as anything as a punishment, but more to protect you. Because this is for those who have said, yes, I believe, and have come before the church and said, I am a follower of Christ. If you are a Christian, you'll come forward. Um, the way we do it here at Grace is we come forward with two, uh, two aisles, but three places of serving. I haven't counted the elder, the, the servers, but we've got three, I think, so we're good, because Doug does the music. Um, you'll gather, this is going to be awkward for some of you, and I've gone other places and have found it awkward, so enjoy that. It's like small groups. You're going to come into groups, and you're going to stand there, and you're going to feel different, but embrace that, because what you're going to do is take a piece of bread, or if you want to take a, a gluten-free cracker, feel free. You're going to take, the outer ring is wine, the inner ring is juice, drink to your conscience, and you're going to wait till everybody has both, and then you're going to take it together. And it's just a family meal. And then when you're finished, you'll exit down the sides. And that's what we're going to do this morning for our communion. So let me pray, and then we'll set these elements apart. Jesus, you knew of our need to be constantly reminded and even freshly filled by the knowledge of you. All through Colossians, through Paul, you are telling us that you want us to be filled with the knowledge of you, Jesus, and your treasures and this communion is another way you've provided, a very unique way that your spirit reminds us and convinces us of our adoption as sons and daughters. So I pray even now you would open our eyes to continually see above and to be setting our affections on things that are with you, Jesus, and not on earthly things. We need you now, Holy Spirit, to do this. Amen.